Over the last few months, we've been looking at the first uh, preserved letter by Peter to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey. And we've been following a clear argument. You know, we have these Bibles where it is broken down into verses and chapters, uh, but Peter's letter uh, is like a, a, a single address. And so while we divide it up, for Peter it was a, a single letter that was sent out, and it was supposed to be kind of uh, read all at once. And if you were there uh, uh, a few years ago, we read uh, a lot of the New Testament like that. So we took away the verses and the chapters, and we just invo- uh, enjoyed the New Testament for the, uh, the letters and episodes it was meant. Um, and so Peter, right from the start, has this clear trajectory and this clear line of thought. Um, and I think we need to do a little recap before we go into Troublesome Chapter 3. So, Peter exclaims that the world is kind of divided into two types of people. And everyone is divided as to what they do with Jesus, this living stone. And we had this... Uh, 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 fascinating uh, picture at the beginning of chapter 2 where Peter says uh, Jesus is the living stone and you either build your life on him or you stumble over him either he's helpful to you or he causes you to uh, uh, fall either something good comes out of him or he's an obstacle and so The whole of humanity is divided into those who build their life on Jesus and those who don't. And if you don't, if you've tripped over Jesus and you cursed him, you live in this moral darkness. You are kind of unaware, really, of what truth and deceit looks like. You don't know what moral goodness is and uh, moral evil. You're kind of stumbling around in the dark uh, with no direction. And you don't have a uh, proper perspective on life. Uh, You don't know the uh, eternal order of things. And so there's this picture of blindness and darkness often associated with those that uh, aren't sort of plugged in to Jesus. Christians, on the other hand... They are different. They have their eyes wide open. They know what truth looks like. They enjoy life. And it was lovely that Bianca brought that word that she was like, Jesus is supposed to bring love and peace and joy. When you meet Jesus, he's supposed to change things for the better. Even if your situation doesn't change, then uh, knowing Jesus is a good thing. And more than that, you find you have a purpose. When you encounter Jesus and he calls your name, you suddenly find that you are part of his people. And there is that uh, beautiful verse in 1 Peter 2 that talks about all the different things we are, about being a priesthood and a a people. And, And suddenly, while we were wandering aimlessly in the desert, suddenly we are part of a very clearly defined group of people. And that we have a purpose and an objective in life. 
The problem is that the people that see, that are joyful, that are peaceful, still have to rub shoulders with the blind and the ignorant and those that are stumbling around in the darkness. In fact, uh, uh, we live our short mortal lives often in a world ruled by people that are ignorant and darkened in their understanding. The Christians know joy and peace and love and light, and yet the majority are not in that situation, and they don't understand us. They are confused at best buyers and often otherwise outraged and uh, hostile to us. And so Peter has drawn this line of argument saying this is what humanity is, this is how it's divided, and this is the grief that Christians endure. So now, and we saw this in chapter 2, there is this obvious question. Christians are like, well, what do we do? How do we interact with the wider world? Do we retreat into our own little fortresses of solitude? Do we form little cults and just look pensively over the top and then just enjoy praise and worship without interacting with anyone else? Or do we live life in the wider world? And Peter reassures them that you don't have to form little cults where you exclude everyone else. You can live life alongside other people, but there is a way to do it. You don't just adopt their values. You are a Christian, and you need to think about how you interact with them. So the first thing, if you remember, Peter mentions is how we deal with civil authority. And and so we would think, uh, for us, we would think about uh, sort of politics, Uh, We would think about civil authority. We would think about the law of the land. Uh, And and so we would think about all these things that intrude on our lives. And Peter says, you know, obey them. Whoever is in charge, you look where you can to obey them. Now, Peter was talking at a time when there was a, a pretty nasty Uh, emperor in charge and he was doing some wretched things to Christians and Peter could still hold his hand up and say you know what where you can be submissive and that's a word that our culture hasn't embraced the idea of submissiveness is not something that gets anyone excited in the 21st century but that is what Peter says be submissive to these governments that God has put in charge Then um, he goes on and uh, he says that think of servants and masters. And and we don't live uh, in in, in that sort of culture anymore, thankfully. And uh, uh, we would probably translate it as employees and employers. And he says, um, Christians who are employed, be submissive to those that are in charge of you. Do what they say. Abide by their rules. If they expect you to arrive at work at nine o'clock, turn up then. If they expect you uh, to be dressed in a certain way, if they expect your conduct to be a certain day, where it is not contrary to God's law, be submissive. 
So we have these institutions and these powers that are in place that Christians quite easily kick against. You know, there is a lot in our government that I would be like, you know what, we need to form some sort of revolution or insurrection and perhaps burn Parliament down or something and start again. There are also stuff that happens in my work that I'm like, you know what, we need to form some sort of insurrection or revolution and start again. And possibly your own work situations, uh, you're like, yeah, we need to start again in this or where you're being educated or whatever. Uh, But Peter says, hold on, before you burn things down, listen to uh, what I have to say. Uh, Be submissive where you can. And all this talk of being submissive and uh, sort of giving in and things... uh, You can read it and you get, oh, I don't like the sound of that. I thought we were people of power and sort of uh, dominion and that we were going to take the world by storm. And then Peter says, well, you need to remember who we follow. We followed a guy called Jesus and he did not go round uh, uh, forming revolutions and insurrections. He did not kick the Romans out of Israel. He did not even upset the power basis of the religious people in Jerusalem. He submitted again and again to his father's will in that context. And so there is this language of submissiveness that is unusual to us. And in the 21st century, it's not something we necessarily like to hear. But it is a very clear line of argument that Peter is drawing experienced Christians down. He's saying, you know, be obedient to the civil authorities. Be obedient uh, to your employer. And now we get to chapter 3. So uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way. Everyone say, same way. Same way. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. Everyone say inner self. That unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, we will get to you next week. So I hope you heard it at the beginning of this passage that Peter has gone down these different uh, structures in society and he's now got to the structure of marriage. And he uses like six verses to talk to the women and then kind of one verse for the husbands, and the husbands are like, hallelujah, and the wives are like, man, really, that seems uh, slightly unjust. So 
The question is, why is there so much devoted to women and why is so little devoted to men? Well, it may be that women were all out of order and they needed to be checked by Peter. Or it could be that Peter dresses them first because that was a more dominant issue. It may be that there were a shed load of uh, uh, women that had discovered Christ, that the men were too pig-headed to join in, and so this was a feature of the churches he was written to. Now, um, I haven't got any figures to prove it, but um, I think there has been a feature of church for the last 2,000 years that is often populated by women. There is a feature of the gospel that they seem to get that guys are less inclined to. And, and, and we're not going to visit that uh, today. But I just want to say that it, it, it doesn't seem, um, that it seems to me likely that this, that there was a large number of women in the churches that Peter was writing to that had this issue that Peter decided to bring up as of vital importance after government and work. And so he's talking to, uh, uh, or writing to a, a load of ladies, and some of them, it seems, were living without husbands that had met Jesus. And so the situation is, what does the wife do when the husband doesn't love Jesus? Does she kick him out? Does she run away? Well, Peter addresses this problem very practically. He says, this is how you behave in a marriage, as a wife that loves Jesus. He says, submit to your husbands. And all the feminists and 21st century women are like, whoa there, Kevin, that sounds a little bit redundant now. Aren't we past that? Let's get past the patriarchy and uh, uh, just enjoy the equality of the sexes. But this has been Peter's argument from the beginning. Christians submit. He's not asking the wives to do anything different to what he's been asking the people all the way up to that point. Jesus lived his entire life in submission. And now he's saying, wives, it should come no surprise that I say to you, submit. That is the whole pattern of Christian life. That is the whole pattern of what Christians should behave like in the wider world. Now, as with government and bosses... Peter says, live a life that glorifies God. Live a life that frustrates false accusations and causes people to look kindly on your faith and on uh, your belief. And Peter, right at the beginning, says... Wives, in this place of marriage, you really need to help your husband know Jesus. That's kind of like of paramount importance. This is someone you're kind of tethered to. This is this uh, one flesh phenomenon. Peter says, if you love Jesus, you'd really want your husband to love Jesus too. And um, then he says, this is how we do it. And if you're a wife 
and your husband doesn't know Jesus and you are enduring a marriage with all the difficulties that come with two people uh, where one knows light and the other knows darkness, you would listen in. You would lean in and say, so Peter, what's your advice to a wife that is married to someone that doesn't know Jesus? Peter says, and he implies this, relentless repetition... Arguing and bullying is not the way that a wife, generally speaking, will bring her husband into the kingdom of God. Peter says, in the context of marriage, the believing wife will have the joy of seeing her husband become a Christian if she lives a life of beauty. And let me make clear, the sort of language he's using is exactly what he used with bosses and the government. This is not a new category. Peter is saying it is the same thing. When you um, are in the workplace, live beautifully. When you are dealing with the government, live beautifully. And they will glorify God when they see your deeds. Even though they're pagans, they will, they will see your life and they will have their thinking transformed. And what does a beautiful life look like? Well, we could turn to so many different passages. Um, but we're going to turn to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mind. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. I don't care whether you're the husband or the wife. If that is what you are enjoying uh, at home... That's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? If, you, if your husband or wife knows Jesus and you don't, and this is your experience of the Christian faith, that's going to draw you nearer Jesus. So it goes on in verse uh, 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. That's a pretty grim picture of a... Uh, a person. If you were married to someone uh, that had lots of bitterness, rage, anger, and bawling, that's going to be a short marriage. And and so uh, we find here Paul giving this great picture of what it is to uh, uh, be a Christian. And Peter's kind of saying, "Do that. Get rid of all of that. Be kind and compassionate." To one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you are married and the other half is behaving to you like that, it's got to help, isn't it? It's got to be refreshing. It's got to be distinctive from all the other marriages out there if your other half is behaving like that towards you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Everyone say love. Love. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave uh, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
I wonder if you see again, Jesus submitted himself. Jesus gave in for our sake. And so Peter is telling the wives, do what Jesus did. We are not dealing with sort of gender politics. Paul writes something about that, and we will look at that another, night, another morning. But here, Peter is dressing wives that are struggling with unsaved husbands, and Peter says, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus to your other half. Be like Jesus to your husband that may not treat you as you should. And let me say, and say this morning, that I think Peter's advice to wives really applies to us all. None of us can really say this, we can just run a line through it and go, that doesn't apply to me, I can move on to the bit that doesn't deal with marriage. I don't know um, about the other married couples here, but I see my wife more than anyone else in this world. I see her when I get up, I see her when I go to bed. And we live life alongside. I see her more than my children, who go to sleep at like, proper hours most of the time. And I see her more than my parents, and I see her more than my bosses and everyone. This is someone I live alongside on an a, um, a almost hourly basis. And I suggest that that dynamic gives us a great insight into what evangelism looks like for people we live alongside. If there are people that you see on a regular basis, and I'm thinking whether it's your employees or your employers, um, it's uh, people you deal with on a daily basis, I suggest to you that Peter's advice to wives applies to you too. Live a life of beauty. Don't keep arguing with them. Don't keep putting the boot in saying you need to follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus and coming up with increasingly clever arguments of why they're an idiot why they are morally insane because they are but you know what we're gentle with them we are kind to them we look to be helpful to them we live lives of beauty so that instead of them thinking uh oh here comes that christian again they never stop nagging me i just uh this jesus just sounds like a pain in the neck when they come across you and go you know what? that person's never bitter i see them on a daily basis and they never get bitter they never get angry they're always encouraging i'm always uh feeling lighter and happier when i leave their company And that's the sort of thing that causes people to go, why are you different to everyone else? And they want to know more. And so your family, your parents, your siblings, your friends and colleagues. Peter actually gives an insight how to win them for Christ. Be like a wife in Peter chapter 3. So in verse 3 of chapter 3, Peter has this wonderful thing uh, where he says, um, a woman's beauty shouldn't come from external finery. And the uh, men who have translated the Bible uh, and uh, the guys that have sort of run churches and fellowships 
have kind of got excited with this over the years and sort of suggested that uh, women uh, should be sort of the plainer of the two sexes where they're not allowed to wear anything and in fact the duller and less appealing they are the more like uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 they are. But the thing is that's not Peter's point. Peter is not saying that women should not have beauty treatments and nice clothes and earrings. It's one of those things that if you were to take this passage literally women would have to go around naked. Because that is what it's saying. He's saying, don't have outer adornments, you have to have an inner beauty. No one has ever suggested that women should go around naked after reading this. And it's because they understand that Peter's point is not women shouldn't look nice, it's women should pay attention to their inner beauty. It's a bit like Uh, Jesus saying, gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. Jesus is not actually saying, blind yourself. He's saying uh, uh, something else and more profound. And so any of you that are sort of judging the women, thinking for having makeup or gold or anything else because it's against one Peter, then you've missed the point and you need to read it as a letter. Peter wants to inspire these troubled wives in the congregation that care and attention should be spent on the inside it's okay to spend care and attention on the outside that's fine and the the guys certainly appreciate it but it's also good to spend time on the inside and in fact Peter says do it don't just do your face do your heart. Don't just do your hair, do your heart. And then Peter goes on and he says this, which, again, if you are reading with a certain prejudice, it's really easy uh, for this just to confirm your bias. He says, uh, wives should have a gentle and quiet spirit and all the guys that sort of get nagged at wife are like hallelujah I'm up for that I want a gentle quiet preferably silent most of the time wife that will just sort of get me my beer and turn on the right TV channel for me and then you've missed the point again because that's not at all what Peter is saying the Peter isn't saying, wife, mindlessly give in to your husband. He didn't say that about the government. He didn't say that about uh, slaves. And he's not saying that about wives. This gentle and quiet spirit can be found in one very peculiar person. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. I wonder if you notice the phrase... Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. I could have read less less out, but it's a great little passage. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son has chosen to reveal him. And then he comes in in verse 28. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And it's very hard to read that and go, oh, I want to know Jesus. I want to, I want to come to him. That, that sounds like something my life needs. And then he goes, take my yoke upon you. Take my friendship. Take this uh, joining of folk together and learn from me. Copy me. And what does it look like to copy Jesus? Well, Jesus says this about himself. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Everyone say gentle and humble. Gentle and humble. This is what Jesus was like. He invites people to him and he says you will learn to be gentle and humble too. This is not a targeted um, thing against one part of the Christian community. This is for everyone. And so when Peter says, wives be gentle and humble and submissive, that is not a new thing. That is not a special category that uh, the subjugated, oppressed women folk only have to bear with. But this is something that all Christians are supposed to bear up under. We're all supposed to be gentle and humble. We're all supposed to be submissive. And Peter then reassures them. He says, if this is a priority of yours, if you really value gentleness and humbleness, that is something that will last forever. Your hair may get brittle and grey. Your skin may sag. Other appearances may falter. But if you seek gentleness and humbleness... That is an attribute that lasts forever. And not only does it last forever, but God loves it. If you ever needed a motivation to be gentle and humble, that seems to be a good one. So, in verse 5, Peter explains that in Scripture, in this history of Israel, it is full of women that did this, that had this inner beauty that radiated out. They had a profound love of God, and it transformed their inner being. So they were uh, incredibly attractive personalities. And so we find, again and again in Scripture, not just godly men, but inspiring godly women. And you'll find them in Miriam and Hannah and Esther and Ruth and Deborah and possibly my favourite, Abigail. I, I've 
put a paragraph in about Abigail and then deleted it like a hundred times in this sermon. But Abigail's this wonderful character in 1 Samuel 25 and she encounters David, the King David, and her husband's a wretch and an oaf and an idiot and she just completely contradicts him and does something beautiful and uh, then God strikes him dead and he dies and uh, then she marries King David. And there is this, uh, just this incredible character of Abigail and scripture holds her up and says... Be like that. Be like that. If your other half is an idiot, then you're not somehow obliged to be an idiot too. And so scripture is full of women that are brave and courageous for their faith. And of all these women, Peter turns now to Sarah. And it's a little more difficult from scripture to find these heroic moments I'd really like Peter to have said and remember Abigail because I can go on and on about Abigail uh, uh, but Sarah is a little more subtle um, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 verse 21 tell me who you want to be um, tell me You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. So the slave woman is Hagar and the free woman is Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women, for the woman, women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for the Mount Zion in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery from her children, with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren women who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud. You have had no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now brothers, like Isaac and children of the promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Um, It's the same. How far am I supposed to read? down to verse 8 1 is the same now but what does the scripture say get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in inheritance with the free woman's son therefore brothers we are not children of the slave woman but of the free woman so in the new testament sarah represents the covenant of grace Sarah represents freedom. Sarah represents being saved by Jesus. Sarah represents the goodness and overtop generosity of God. Hagar is the one where, you know what, if we behave right, we'll get saved, where works are somehow going to bring salvation. And so, Um, In the New Testament mindset, these are the two categories that Hagar and Sarah represent. And so when Peter now says, wives, what you should be like, be like Sarah. And it is not just simply a one-dimensional, oh, she obeyed Abraham. It was a, she was the one that brought forth grace, the covenant of grace. She is the mother of the people of a divine promise. 
And when Peter brings Sarah into play, suddenly the, uh, uh, the scope of what he's saying explodes. Because suddenly he's saying, wives, be like Sarah. Be like that mother of the children of promise. And suddenly you're like, oh, we're not just talking about um, small domestic uh, obedience. We are talking something about salvation. We are talking something about discipleship. We are talking about something much grander and more wonderful and more exciting. Every single one of us that calls Jesus Lord, Paul would say, you are a child of Sarah because you are a child of faith. You are the real Israel. You are born of the promise long ago. All of us should have this magnificent appreciation of Sarah because she is pivotal in the history of salvation. And so when Peter mentions Sarah as someone to look up to, it is not just an issue of domestic servitude. But it is one of salvation, one of grace, one of the new covenant, one of unimaginable consequence. So, last reading. Genesis chapter 18. We're just going to read um, quickly something from Sarah's own life. It says this. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Ma- Mamre, where while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet him and, and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant, very well, they answered, do as, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get free sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice, <coughs> a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them and under a tree. While, where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and your Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Abraham's an old guy at this and there are these mysterious three visitors one who maybe Jesus, sort of pre-incarnate, maybe an angel. It's a little bit uh, unclear. Um, a very um, proper word for God is used uh, in this. So don't like to be too exact. But Abraham is visited by these three characters. And Abraham runs to them, which is very undignified for an old man in, in uh, 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 that time. And then he draws them in for refreshment. His has a heart of submissiveness. Isn't it interesting, that thing? He wants to serve. He doesn't want to say, welcome, I am a lord of all you can see. Come and pay homage to me. He goes, can I cook you something? Can I serve you something? 
You are in my realm and I'd love to be kind to you. And Abraham and Sarah, this kind old couple, do some cooking and are generous to these three mysterious visitors. They provide hospitality. And there's quite a few commentators that say this is the thing that kind of characterises Abraham and Sarah again and again. They are generous and hospitable and it is a feature of loving God that they just welcome people in and feed them up. And so husband and wife together, they generously uh, provide for these travellers. And then in response, I don't know, um, in response... One of them says, and Sarah, in your old age, you are going to have a child. They'd been promised one long ago, and that promise may have waned in their hearts, and they were like, oh, it's never going to happen. And I've actually stopped a little bit short in this text, because Sarah, bless her, doesn't give the best response to hearing that she's going to give birth in her old age. But I've kind of uh, glossed over that this morning. And... um, she gives in to this plan of God to give birth even when she's an old lady. When wives embrace submissiveness in their marriage, they prove they are daughters of Sarah. They prove they are part of this lineage of salvation. They prove that Sarah is their mum. And Peter says that's really good. And these characteristics are not just feminine. The guys expect to do this as well. Abraham was submissive to these three visitors. He served them and looked out for them. And he was gem- gentle and humble and they found peace in his company. So let's not get hang up, hung up about that. But Peter's talking to these wives that are, that are struggling with these uneven marriages. And so the question then comes today, so what does that look like today? Well, I think it's different. I think every marriage is different. And I'm not going to presume that what is said in one has to be said in the other. My wife has to forcibly stop me from doing sort of uh, electrical DIY. We've got a lovely black scar across the top of uh, our um, downstairs bathroom where I jammed a screwdriver into a uh, light socket in the hope of uh, um, fixing it, and I did not do it. And so um, a loving, submissive wife has to go, Kevin, don't don't do that, okay? You're going to kill yourself. Um, And um, there's various... And I'm very good at being impatient with food. And she's going, no, you are not going to eat that not-yet-cooked chicken, OK? Just, just stop. And our sort of however many years of marriage are full of my beautiful, quiet, uh, submissive wife going, stop that. Don't do that. Otherwise, this marriage will be stopped because you will have died and killed yourself one way or another. Um, and so it's different. In, in the marriage scenario, uh, a godly wife looks different because there are per- different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses. The honouring of the other looks different. And 
we are who are outside those marriages are going to be very careful how we judge and point the finger and advise because it is a relationship unlike any other. But let me tell you, a godly wife does not indulge destructive attitudes or evil behaviour. A wife shouldn't endure it and a husband shouldn't endure it. They shouldn't allow it. It should be something that is far from their door. A wife embracing her relationship as a Christian makes godliness easier and delightful. A wife that is submissive makes following Jesus a better experience altogether. And to be fair, the reverse is true as well. A godly husband should make following Jesus easier and more exciting. And to be fair, at the end of this sermon, everything that's said to wives is said to all of us. We're all expected to be like Jesus, be quiet and gentle and humble and submissive. You know, this isn't a special category that women alone have to bear under. It's something that applies to each and every one of us. And I love, Paul, uh, Peter winds up this thing by saying, don't be scared, don't be terrified. And basically saying, be brave. You women of the faith who husbands don't know Jesus, stand up and be counted. The Lord your God is with you. The Holy Spirit is on your side. When you feel weak, when you feel lesser, when you feel uh, under the cosh, be brave. Don't be terrified. The Lord your God is with you. And that phrase applies to all of us. When we are being submissive in whatever relationship is out there and we feel marginalised and pushed out and belittled, Peter says, don't be terrified for goodness sake. Don't you remember who your dad is? Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you for these words of Peter, these words born out of pastoral concern uh, for women uh, struggling uh, in their marriages to unsaved uh, men. Lord God, I, I pray that each and every one of us would pay attention to our inner beauty, that we would all character um carry the characteristics and hallmarks of jesus in being quiet and gentle and humble lord god and i pray that as we are submissive in so many different circumstances that that would not mean that we are terrified or worried or scared but that we would be brave because the Lord our God is with us. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.